Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Vice Magazine podcast, your definitive monthly guide to enlightening information. While many editions of our magazine are themed, like last month's photo issue, September's issue is themeless, but we still have plenty of compelling stories to discuss. So let's get started with our table of contents. Photo editor Elizabeth Renstrom explains our claustrophobic cover image and how, through a happy accident, the photographer was able to get the shot. It was shot in Jinan, which is the capital of the Shandong province in eastern China. He was getting lost one night with his camera when he turned the corner and was suddenly drawn to this high-rise. Starting with this episode, we'll be replacing Haisam Hussein's How It Works column with a new segment called Why We Wear It, which focuses on the history of popular fashion items. Alice Newell Hansen, the managing editor of ID in the U.S., discusses the history of the much-mocked fanny pack. Skeptowes fanny packs. Supreme and Louis Vuitton have collaborated on a logoed leather style. And in February, ASAP Rocky wore a red Balenciaga iteration to Raph Simmons' first Calvin Klein show in New York. Jason Leopold, our Freedom of Information Act expert, reveals how 66 years ago, the FBI opened an investigation into a reporter who pissed them off. And some of his work has been described specifically by Hoover as, quote, utter bunk. That's fake news in today's parlance. Vice UK editor Bruno Bailey chats with photographer David Severn about his Thanks Maggie project, which focuses on the society left behind by the death of Britain's mining industry. And the more I looked into it, the more I unearthed these stories of working class people who have a talent for performance and, and, and this long history, this long lineage of theatre and performance and working class culture. Erica Allen interviews Krishna Andavalu, the host and executive producer of Weedikit, about an upcoming episode of his new show, which focuses on the stigma that follows mothers who smoke marijuana while pregnant. The simple answer is that legalization doesn't just wipe away the slate of stigma and judgment against women. Finally, Marina Garcia Vasquez, editor-in-chief of Creators Advice, tells us about an artifact she received while putting together a not-safe-for-work exhibit at the Museum of Sex in New York City. We were looking for new perspectives on sexuality, not just pretty naked ladies to put on a wall. But let's start at the beginning. Here's Elizabeth Renstrom with what went down behind this month's cover. Christian Delfino is the artist behind our September Stories issue of Vice magazine. 
On the cover, you see a dizzying scene of endless windows stacked on top of each other, creating a beautiful, claustrophobic pattern. What drew me to this image was one, my own voyeurism, and two, Delfino's ability to show the massiveness of a city in one really tight crop. I chose it because I was intrigued by the individual story behind each window in the frame, and I felt like that would draw other viewers in. It was shot in Jinan, which is the capital of the Shandong province in eastern China. He was getting lost one night with his camera when he turned the corner and was suddenly drawn to this high-rise. He was lucky enough to access an outdoor public elevator at the building across the street and rode it to the roof to shoot some images. This is one city of 16 that's included in his beautiful portfolio called Disconnected in the September issue. Delfino originally became fascinated with the world's biggest metropolises after growing up in Sarasota, Florida, a small city filled with many families and senior citizens. Inspired by photos in skate magazines and an encouraging high school teacher, he received an associate's degree in photography from the International Academy of Design and Technology in Tampa, and then started traveling around the world. He set out to reveal the slower aspects of busy cities, capturing subjects in motion, but not as blurs. Ultimately, he's more concerned with the present than what's in our future, and I think this shows in his thoughtful captures of small moments in vast urban landscapes, like the one mirrored on our cover. If you're a child of the 1980s, like myself, it's very likely that you have an image permanently ingrained in your memory of your mom or dad posing on vacation with a bulging fanny pack clinging to their waist. Despite mockery, they are pretty practical and have endured throughout the years. So here's Alice Newell Hansen with a history lesson on the emergence of the fanny pack and how it's coming back into fashion in 2017. When I was researching this piece, I asked people what first came to mind when they heard the words fanny pack. And 90% of my friends and colleagues mentioned embarrassing outfits their relatives had worn in the 1980s. There were also a lot of references to tourists and specifically to Disneyland. One of the other editors at ID told me that when she was 10, her dad, who was a doctor, crafted her and her sister matching fanny packs out of Viagra wallets and Velcro and made them wear them around Disneyland. In other words, most people still don't have positive associations with fanny packs. But here's the thing, fanny packs are also extremely practical and fashion thrives on recontextualizing painfully ugly items. So here we are in 2017 with a fanny pack trend. Skepta wears fanny packs. Supreme and Louis Vuitton have collaborated on a logoed leather style. And in February, ASAP Rocky wore a red Balenciaga iteration to Raph Simmons' first Calvin Klein show in New York. Like Crocs, like Birkenstocks and like bucket hats, Fanny packs for new trendiness seems like a front behind which we can just revel in their functionality. And I'm wondering if fanny packs will turn up on the runways. Maybe at Yeezy. Kim Kardashian West wore a Ferrari fanny pack and later in August, a vintage logoed Gucci number. Kanye West himself hasn't been spotted in a fanny pack yet, but Kim and Kanye's former bodyguard, Pascal Duvier, wears one every day. And he told Heist Nabiety last year that if he revealed what was in it, he would have to break your arms and cut your tongue out so you don't tell anyone. I would also love to see a Calvin Klein fanny pack. It would be in keeping with Raph Simmons's reinterpretation of American minimalism and his youthful and street influences. Fanny packs weren't always mocked though. Proto fanny packs, i.e. leather belt purses, were fashionable among medieval Europeans before clothing had sewn in pockets. Native American buffalo pouches and Scottish Highland sporans are worn by each culture 
and when the modern fanny pack initially entered the mainstream, it was embraced. The first true fanny pack is thought to have been invented in 1962 by an Australian woman named Melba Stone, who was possibly, or possibly not, inspired by kangaroo pouches. But much like rollerblades, they're natural partners in crime. It wasn't until the 1980s that fanny packs truly transcended. In 1988, Adweek named the fanny pack the product of the year. Gucci and Chanel produced luxurious logo-covered versions. They appeared in Vogue editorials and music videos, most famously Pump Up the Jam. And in 1994, the fanny pack was immortalised in that iconic photo of The Rock. When the photo came to light in 2014, Jimmy Fallon asked Dwayne The Rock Johnson what he was carrying in his pack, and he replied, Pop-Tarts and condoms. But by the mid-90s, the fanny pack's popularity was waning, and by the 2000s, it had become a punchline. Weird Al Yankovic sang about fanny packs in a song called White and Nerdy, in which he rhymes fanny pack with Sail Down at the Gap, which tells you everything you need to know about the accessories reputation by 2006. One of my favourite nuggets from researching this piece was coming across a Seinfeld episode in which George wears a fanny pack, and of course Jerry mocks him. He thinks a woman may have lost interest in him because she saw a piece of his used dental floss. Jerry points out it may have had more to do with his royal blue Jansport fanny pack. He tells George it looks like his belt is digesting a small animal. But even better than this is that there was almost an entire episode of Seinfeld about fanny packs. Former Seinfeld writer Carol Liefer did a Reddit AMA in 2014 and she described an episode she'd pitched that was sadly scrapped. It was based on her own life. Fanny packs were really popular at the time and she was wearing one under a t-shirt one day and noticed that everywhere she went, people were letting her skip to the front of lines. She later realised that people thought she was pregnant. This is obviously something that Elaine would then use to her advantage. So that was the premise for the episode. Elaine wears a fanny pack under her shirt, realises its effect and then starts using it to get taxis and generally make her life easier. That's one argument for wearing a fanny pack. Long before President Trump coined the term fake news or declared war on the media, there was a determined reporter named Ben Bagdikian who rattled the Nixon White House and landed on FBI director J. Edgar Hoover's enemies list. Bagdikian was likely best known as a reporter who obtained a copy of the Pentagon Papers and advocated publishing it in the Washington Post. Here's Jason Leopold explaining just what Bagdikian did to piss off the FBI. Long before President Donald Trump turned fake news into a household phrase and vilified the media as the, quote, enemy of the people, J. Edgar Hoover, the notorious director of the FBI, was building secret dossiers on journalists whose reporting pissed him off. One of the muckrakers who landed on Hoover's enemies list was Ben Bagdikian. Bagdikian was the dean of the journalism school at the University of California, Berkeley, but he's best known as the reporter who is the recipient of the most important leak in U.S. history. Bagdikian obtained the Pentagon Papers about America's secret role in the Vietnam War from whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, and Bagdikian was instrumental in getting that published in the Washington Post, where he worked as a reporter. Bagdikian, an Armenian-American, died in March 2016 at the age of 96. After his death, I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the FBI to see if the Bureau had any documents on him, given his place in history. A year later... The Bureau sent me about 200 pages, spanning more than two decades. These files are stunning. It underscores, however, 
that the venom President Trump spews about the media is not unique. He just happens to be very open about his feelings, whereas Hoover and his agents were highly secretive. What these files show is that the FBI started digging for dirt on Bagdikian in 1951, after he published a series of stories in the Washington Star titled What Price Security? that was about, wait for it, Russia and communist sympathizers. I picked out about six pages from the badge that I found the most interesting. The first document in the cache is a memo an FBI special agent in charge at the Boston field office sent Hoover informing him about the status of a criminal search for records on Bagdikian. The reason the Boston field office was involved is because Bagdikian was a resident of Boston. If you're reading along in the magazine or on the website, you'll notice that these documents are in numerical order. So on this first document, uh, we see a term, uh, it looks like an acronym, called re-bullet. And if you're wondering what that means, its reference is made to Bureau Letter. The memo notes that the FBI's Boston office did not have any records on Bagdikian. So the FBI went a step further and looked up Bagdikian's credit report, which was illegal. The agent noted that Bagdikian's credit record was favorable, his character and habits were recorded as good. The next document is a May 23, 1961 letter to a Mr. Deloach from FBI agent D.C. Morrell. Uh, this memo shows that the Bureau was not happy with uh, Bagdikian's article in the Providence Journal Bulletin marking Hoover's 37th anniversary running the agency. Morell noted that Bagdikian's story, quote, made a number of snide comments relative to the FBI and to Mr. Hoover. Hoover's response, see that Bagdikian is not on our mailing list and gets no cooperation. Kind of doubt that Bagdikian at this point was depending upon access uh, to any of his reporting from the FBI. The memo then highlights the FBI's troubled relationship with the Providence Journal due to, quote, vicious editorials that took the FBI to task for being almost immune to the traditional process of checks and balances, notably regarding its confidential informant program. This is noteworthy because this memo has some parallels to news stories that were published about the FBI in the last 10 years and the FBI's relationship with confidential informants today. The next document is a July 20th, 1967 letter that Deloach sent to Mildred Stiegel, who was President Lyndon B. Johnson's closest aide. Apparently, Stiegel requested a background check on Bagdikian and the editor of the Riverside Press Enterprise. By this time, Bagdikian was a contributor to the Saturday Evening Post. It's unclear from the documents why Stiegel wanted background information on him. But Deloach informed her that the FBI had nothing derogatory. He did, however, alert her to the series of articles Bagdikian published 12 years prior, quote, which were critical of several phases of loyalty investigations concerning government employees. But again, this is an important document because it shows that the White House was interested in Bagdikian and his reporting. The next document shows that it wasn't just the government who was alarmed by Bagdikian's reporting. His readers were, too. Uh, in 1964, a reader from Kentucky wrote a letter to Hoover after Bagdikian reported that communists were feeding hungry citizens in his state. A footnote to the letter that was for internal use only says, correspondent, meaning the reader, is not identifiable 
in bureau files. That means the FBI checked to see if they had any records on the reader who wrote the letter to the FBI, underscoring again how the FBI was spying on U.S. citizens. The footnote goes on to say that Ben Bagdikian is well known in bureau files as a writer who has criticized the FBI in the past, and he has made snide remarks relative to Mr. Hoover, and some of his work has been described specifically by Hoover as, quote, utter bunk. That's fake news in today's parlance. Uh, in 1975, what these documents show is that Bagdikian filed a Freedom of Information Act request for all records the FBI had on him, and he sent the letter directly to Hoover. The FBI stonewalled him for more than a year and eventually turned over some documents, but it's unknown whether they gave him the full file. Curiously, Bagdikian's FBI file doesn't reference any of his work on the Pentagon Papers, except for an October 12, 1971 memo submitted to his FBI file, along with a copy of an article Bagdikian wrote for a special issue of the Columbia Journalism Review. It was titled, The First Amendment on Trial, After the Pentagon Papers. And the title of Bagdikian's story was, What Did We Learn? I'm Jason Leopold, reporting for Vice Magazine. Check out the rest of the files and download the complete set at vice.com. Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire in the British Midlands make up one of the country's largest former coalfield areas. But the closure of the collieries in the 80s and 90s profoundly changed Britain's economic landscape, and communities were hit hard. Photographer David Severn began photographing the people and places of these coalfields in an effort to capture social life in the region 30 years after the 1984-85 miners' strike. His series draws on the music and culture of the coalfields and celebrates the passion for showmanship among the performers keeping the legacy of working-class entertainment alive. Here he is discussing the series with Vice UK editor Bruno Bailey. So uh, my photographs are all taken in the British Midlands, which is uh, a post-industrial area. Um, much of the north of England was coal mining, steel production, uh, shipbuilding uh, as well. And uh, in the 1980s, uh, there was a massive change that Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher instigated, which was uh, she basically decided that... Uh, the unions were too too strong, too powerful, uh, and she basically waged uh, waged war on uh, on the unions and and by extension the north of England. And at the same time, she triggered a financial sort of revolution um, in London and, and the southeast by deregulating the financial markets. So there was you know it was a very kind of dramatic time, lots of protests, lots of uh, divisions. And the the project isn't necessarily um, about that, but yeah, as in terms of uh, that, that that's the context that it kind of exists within. And it's an area obviously that you grew up in, so it's a story you're very personally familiar with. Something you grew up with. Um, can you explain a bit about that personal connection you have to the story? Yeah. Um, so I I'm a bit too young to remember the 80s. I was born in 1991, so I didn't see the miners' strike, which was the kind of uh, legacy of Thatcher, particularly in that area. But I suppose I was born at a time when a lot of the coal mines in the area were, um, you know, it was all kind of petering out. It was all coming to an end. And people were kind of, you know, kind of asking, well, what's next, really? And there was a bit of a, a time in the 90s where parts of the north of England, you know, kind of this sort of regeneration thing hadn't come in. But at the same time, you know, a lot of the industry had been depleted. 
and so you know there was you know the bit of an identity crisis i suppose so that was you know that was what it was like kind of in the 90s growing up uh, in in mansfield which is the town uh, where a lot of the photographs in the project are taken uh, my dad was um, moved from kind of mine to mine as they closed down. So in the, in the early 90s, he worked in the main Mansfield colliery, which was Crown Farm, and that closed down. And, you know, and this is the story of a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the miners in the area. As the pits closed, they kind of moved on and, and on until, you know, eventually they were just made redundant and there was nowhere else to go. So from Crown Farm, he went to Billsthorpe and to Harworth briefly and then to Thorsby and all of these places feature in the project. And it's an ongoing sort of project but how, how long has it been ongoing for? Quite a long time. I, I started it um, right at the end of 2011 and it was really the last thing on my mind to make a project in Mansfield. I'd actually just moved away from the area, not very far, I'd just moved up to Nottingham which is sort of the, the nearest city and, you know, I was interested in documentary photography, you know, I was, you know, taking my own pictures and interested in working on my own projects, but I wasn't sure really, you know, what to kind of sink my teeth into. And I was looking for something. And it all came about because um, a friend of a friend had applied for some Arts Council money to do a project in Mansfield, looking at different uh, social uses of some of the old pit sites so a lot of these pit sites have been turned into nature reserves or they've been kind of grassed over and made into parklands and that kind of thing. And people go, you know, walking their dogs or bird watching. But there's also lots of illicit uses, you know, as people go and ride their uh, motocross bikes there. You know, as teenagers, we'd go, you know, that was where we went to like drink and, you know, and get away from, you know, sort of out of sight there so we could muck about and, you know, do what we wanted and nobody was there to bother us. So they're kind of interesting places and very uh, surreal really because they're dotted all around these you know the periphery of these of these towns and villages in the area and they're vast spaces as well and as I say the the project w- was you know began by looking at, at different ways that people were using these uh, landscapes and it just kind of grew from there really I just carried on working on it and I think I realized that that the, the, there was no greater subject to look at, you know, as a photographer than than my hometown. And, and I started to realise that, you know, there were great stories where I was born and where I grew up and in the people that I knew and, and that contributed to, to forming myself and my, my identity. And, and I haven't really looked back since. Taking that as our cue to get into the actual specific photos featured in the story in the magazine, I mean, specifically the edit in the magazine is about these communities these kind of you know kind of former workings men's clubs things like that so ways that the society in these towns which have essentially been gutted by the removal of livelihoods and support but the the sort of resilience and this focus on community so if you can describe some of these these spaces how they actually work what these clubs these societies there seems to be a, a variety of them and they're all kind of quite actively maintained in these towns which is really kind of the amazing thing about the project i think definitely well i grew up um sort of sitting on the front row of a lot of these clubs because my dad is a, an elvis presley uh impersonator uh and he performs in the working men's clubs and the miners welfares and that was what he did after his shift at the pit he would you know kind of 
go home, have some, you know, have something to eat, and then he would go out and perform in the clubs uh, as Elvis. And sometimes I used to go with him, you know, on the weekends, uh, and I can just, you know, have memories of sort of, you know, bef- well before the smoking bans sort of smoke-filled clubs, and it re- they really were smoke-filled. It was absolutely dense. It was like a wall of of smoke, you know. And sitting on the front row and, and uh, yeah, just watching these club acts with a, you know, a kind of glitter curtain as the backdrop. And amazingly colourful, amazingly, yeah, characterful and, yeah, something that feels quite rare and, and I, I don't know, I feel quite protective over it in a way. The thing that really kind of always struck me is a lot of a lot of the performers... You know, and a lot of my dad's friends on the club circuit, as well as being tribute acts or, you know, whatever they were, comedians, singers, musicians, a lot, you know, a lot of them were also mine workers or, you know, steel workers, factory workers. They were, you know, they were industrial labourers who were using talent for performance and, you know, a kind of theatrical talent as a means of making an extra income in the evenings and in the and at the weekends and the more i kind of thought about that the more i and the more i looked into it the more i unearthed these stories of working class people who have a uh, talent for performance and 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 this long history this long lineage of theater and performance and working class culture and so you know i wanted to reflect that in the project and I uh, you know it was something that I started to photograph around and that's sort of the direction that the project is heading in at the moment um and it was compounded actually by I went to see a Jeremy Della exhibition there was a picture of a wrestler called Adrian Street and he uh, was from the Welsh Valleys and he was the son of a coal miner and he started working in the pits with his dad um, at 16 but he had this dream of becoming a professional wrestler basically his dream you know it all took off for him he, you know he he basically went to America and he had this amazing sort of illustrious career his gimmick was that he would be in full drag so you know big kind of both on hair and, and fishnet stockings and you know full makeup and he was incredibly successful. And there's this picture where he's come back to the village where he, you know, where he's from, and he's he's visited the mine that you know he worked at with his dad. And this picture is taken in the pit bottom, uh, with his dad stood next to him and all and all the miners in the cage behind them. And Adrian is in his wrestling getup, his full drag, uh, and the the picture is taken, you know, with a kind of full front on flash. And it's just an amazing picture. And, it, it, you know, in that one image, it, it just sort of um, encapsulated everything that I'd been thinking on around this connection between performance and theatre and industrial workers and, the, you know, and working class culture. How, how regulated are these clubs? Are they actual members clubs or are they open to everyone? Or is this a kind of, I mean, just kind of for people to get an idea of where these spaces that these performances are happening in and the yeah. audi- and the audience is just for anyone local or is it a real kind of... It varies. I mean, some of them still have a sort of members-only policy. It's not particularly hard to become a member, though. You just kind of pay your subs, you know, which is probably like a fiver a year or something, and that's it. 
and they're actually very welcoming places. I think often to outsiders, they kind of seem a bit daunting or, or just seem very local, I suppose, and so not meant for outsiders. But but actually, some of the, you know, the warmest and kindest people I've met, you know, or, or encountered in my life have been in in clubs and and that's something that kind of inspires my photography as well is I'm often drawn to photographing people that remind me of somebody from my past or you know remind me of an encounter that I had you know a lot of the people that I photograph are almost like character stand-ins for people that I remember from from my childhood um the clubs are you know unfortunately dying out and they have been dying out for a long time um since the 80s really since the you know the kind of beginning of of the real decline of uh of industry yeah ultimately you know they are dying out and the audiences are of an older generation you generally don't get many young people in there nowadays you know they tend to be the same people that were going to them you know for 30 40 years ago it's just that they've gotten older <laughs> and they've never stopped going to the clubs i wanted to know how you felt about the project in terms of i really couldn't decide if i found the, the photos sad or uplifting or if it was kind of you know and I wanted to know how you saw it you know I feel both uplifted and I feel a great deal of sadness as well there is that duality about the pictures and yeah I suppose there is that kind of tinge of nostalgia in there as well which I'm always conscious of actually as I'm photographing is you know I'm very aware that this could quite easily particularly because it's fairly you know kind of autobiographical work as well I'm sort of at the back of my mind always thinking, you know, is this kind of tipping over too far into nostalgia and and getting hung up on, on the past? Um, but actually, you know, at the same time, these stories, I feel, need telling and I feel that they've not been represented enough. And often I've, I feel that when they are represented, they're kind of abused or they're, you know, they're, they're not they're not sort of taken seriously, I suppose. And they're kind of used as sort of tokenistic, you know, images or this idea of the sort of the grim up north and, you know, look at these people, they're kind of getting by. And, you know, all of that, yeah, usage really of uh, of working class culture really irks me. So, I, And that's why I feel so protective over it. They're things that I remember from my childhood and that I, you know, and that I feel, you know, a deep connection to and and maybe really that you know ultimately the motivation is is no more than that really it's just something that i connect with and something that you know i know well and and that's been a big part of my life and it's just me yeah cementing that or putting it you know in expressing it in in my own way i mean i guess well it'd be interesting to know how you how you it's going to be very hard for you as a as a photographer working as you said on a project which is you an extension of you and a sort of part of you're growing up I mean are you going to be is it going to be one of those projects that's going to go on and on and on I mean how do you see it coming to an end I mean what's the I've kind of stopped looking at it um as a project and I've sort of I mean in a way it is the thing that got me you know that really got me into photography and so I kind of just see it as what I do I just see it as my work as as this kind of uh, fundamental, you know, thing um, that I'm interested in. I can't, I can't kind of lose interest in it because it's, because it's just me. I, I can't honestly see an end to it. I, I think I'd take a break, you know, I take breaks from it, but then I always end up coming back to it, and it's just constantly evolving. 
Medical marijuana has gained acceptance in many parts of America, but one group's use of the drug is still highly stigmatized, pregnant women. Krishna and Avalu's report on women's use of pot to treat morning sickness and other discomfort associated with pregnancy explores how the law judges them more harshly than others. All right, so tell me a bit about this story, Krishna. Who is Kim? Kim is a mother. She has a three and a half year old and she's also pregnant with her second child. She's a veteran of the Air Force where she was a linguistic specialist. Uh, And she's a person who's sort of been through a lot as far as pregnancy complications. And when we found her, she was using marijuana, smoking pot, to sort of deal with the, to deal with a condition called HG or hyperemesis gravitas, which is basically morning sickness that just happens all the time. So during her first pregnancy, she had the same syndrome, uh, took a medication for it. Um, It helped to some degree, but then her child was born with some birth defects. So she blames that medication for those birth defects. And while there aren't, there isn't sort of like overwhelming medical proof that that's entirely true in the world she lives in and the, the, the reality she embodies, like she blames that medication and now thinks pot is a much more natural and safer method of managing those symptoms. When you met her, she was dealing with some conflict still, even if she believes that they are, it is a more natural way to deal with this. She does, because of the social stigma that's ingrained in our culture, have some questions about even her own use of of medical marijuana. So tell me about talking with her. Yeah, I mean, I think like there's a lot of um, legal questions involved and then questions about like whether she will be judged not only by you or me or like the general public, but by child welfare authorities. Right. And so let's go back to some of the history of it. You know, apart from just having been illegal for a very long time, there is something rooted in the 80s crack baby, so-called crack baby epidemic, and this sort of pseudoscience that came out of that period. So what's the relationship there? Well, I mean, in the 80s, there was a small-scale study by this guy named Dr. Ira Chasnoff. He tracked 23 babies whose mothers had used crack cocaine and noticed some behavioral differences or behavioral deficiencies upon their birth or, you know, a few years after their birth. Um... But that was more of a projection of expected outcomes that may have been based upon sort of racist, sexist, and classist categories rather than any hard data. Uh, So then follow-up studies were done years later. And while using cocaine while pregnant is not recommended by anyone and is also does have developmental delays and affects the fetus in grievous ways, the children who they studied whose mothers used cocaine as when they were pregnant, turned out to be no different than anyone who was born in similar socioeconomic conditions. So it turns out that crack isn't, as, isn't worse than being poor. Um, but a lot of that energy was focused upon poor women of color. Um, so the, the myth of the crack baby, the question I had to Dr. Chasnoff when we met was like, are pot babies the new crack babies? Um, and he's, you know, he's not unaware of like how dangerous it is for people in authority to cast judgment from a medical perspective upon pregnant women um, because, and this is now very well known, um, a lack of prenatal care is the leading indicator of whether 
a pregnancy goes well and whether the, the fetus develops into a child that's born healthily. And so when you start punishing women off the bat or judging them, they're less likely to be um, they're less likely to be honest with their doctor or even seek out prenatal care. So he was like, listen, pop babies aren't the new crack babies, or at least I hope not. Uh, but I can't sit here and guarantee that people won't be punished for what he has now done, which was uh, uh, he published a medical opinion that surveyed all of the medical studies that have been done about uh, prenatal cannabis, cannabis use and came to conclusions that it is, in fact, harmful. But the question is, how harmful? We should actually say like what the, the, the consensus science is on um, smoking pot while pregnant, like what it might do to the fetus. Um, and so the two biggest sort of, uh, they're called cohort studies, because you can't do a clinical study on this, which is to say you can't give one group of pregnant moms weed and another group of pregnant moms not weed and then see how their kids turn out. That's just unethical. Um, but through data analysis and statistics, you can find similarly situated mothers who've admitted to smoking weed through surveys and not admitted to smoking weed through surveys and see how their kids turned out. And so there's one study from Pittsburgh and one study from Ottawa, I believe. Um, and they both sort of found that by the age of 10, uh, there is potentially a difficulty in executive functioning, which is to say that's sort of the root cause of ADHD or these sort of uh, learning difficulties. However, the degree of that change is sort of unclear. There are, there are other things that are in dispute, like the physical formation of the fetus. Like, there, does the brain stem form correctly in the first couple weeks if there's a lot of THC? And then to sort of give him more credit, just because he's done a lot of work, uh, this is all based upon survey data from a few years ago. And so we're, there's already a delay and if it's happening more and more and there are more places that, are, that it's legal, then there might be more women who are smoking pot while they're pregnant. So it's just like kind of a, is there an invisible crisis is kind of the question that he asks. And that isn't on its face the wrong question to ask. It's just in the context of how all this stuff is ingested through media and through the way that lawmakers respond to crises like these, it puts an onerous burden on poor women of color and it will be enacted upon their bodies rather than the bodies of, of richer people. Do you see this more in the case of pot being more of a gendered issue or a, or a socioeconomic issue? I think race and economic status is sort of the gateway to policing women and judging women who are pregnant writ large. And the way that kind of works and what I found in the reporting is that uh, while there isn't great data on this, but the women who use pot while they're pregnant is roughly the same across uh, racial and ethnic lines. However, it's much more likely that women of color will come in contact with a medical service professional who thinks it's wrong or bad. So according to a lawyer named Lisa Sangoy, who I interviewed, she defended parents in family court and now is working on like a, an advocacy report that is about the child wel welfare system and how it deals with drug use. What she's found is that white women who are rich can use pot and never really have to face any consequences because their doctors are like, you know, less likely to either be mandated reporters to, uh, or less likely to follow the rules really of being mandated reporters to child welfare authorities, or um, they just don't fear being punished by it. They don't have a history of repercussions for being honest about drug use. And I think, you know, the, the larger issue here is that like people use drugs, you know, and people will always use drugs. 
Uh, but it's, it's, it has been the case that people of color have been punished disproportionately. And in this case, women of color who are more likely to be on Medicaid or, or my, more likely to not have kind of like a benefit of the doubt sort of relationship with their healthcare professional will be the ones who child welfare authorities will go after. As more states adopt medical marijuana and even recreational marijuana, do you see this this particular stigma around pregnant women, do you think it's going to go away or do you see it not going away? Yeah, so I think there is some data out of Denver, the city of Denver, that uh, even, I mean, Denver, pot's legal. It's been legal for a few years now, but that there are more CPS interventions there uh, due to pot use. And that's partly, I mean, you know, from one standpoint, you can be like, that's just better safe than sorry kind of stuff. And Yes, a lot more people are open about their pot use as a result of it being legal, so therefore there would be a concurrent rise as a result of those two phenomenon coming back to back. Uh, but I don't. I, the, the simple answer is that le- legalization doesn't just wipe away the slate of stigma and judgment against women. And so I would expect that, you know, there's a couple, like when, when states propose legalization, like the two big issues, like one big issue is like, well, what about stone drivers? Well, how are we going to deal with that? Uh, and I think this is another one that will, like, well, pregnant women shouldn't be able to smoke pot, so we should have a really tight system to make sure that that doesn't happen. It's a, it's a paternalistic impulse of the state, uh, which, you know, if you just take it on its best intentions, doesn't necessarily um, mean that everyone hates women, but the legalistic ramifications of it all are that women are treated differently under the law because they can get pregnant than men. And that's just, you know, not actually constitutional. Yeah. <laughs> um, so without without giving away anything in the episode, is there any update that you can give about Kim? Kim did have her baby since... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we were there, we- which was... I mean, we weren't there for the for the actual delivery, but we were. I was able to meet the new baby, and she's healthy, and she's wonderful. Uh, they're happy. Um, you know, I won't give away other parts of it, I guess, but... You know, it, this was a story that we've been, you know, at Weedekit, like, kind of since the first season. This is something that tests the boundaries of what we think of as acceptable pot use. And it took us, it just took us that long to find someone who was, would come forward and, like, let our cameras roll on them while they did this, while they talked about this, and while their child was born. So I give, like, Kim a ton of credit for just putting herself out there like that. Uh and, you know, for potentially having the blowback come to her and her family. Um, I'm really proud that we could tell this story because it's something we've wanted to for a while. What you see when you peel back the layers of the assumptions and ideologies that have kept pot illegal are also the assumptions and ideologies that force other inequities and inequalities in the world. Well, listeners should look out for High Risk Pregnancy, the episode of Weedekit that's premiering on October 17th. Vice employees are constantly flying across the globe covering interesting stories, sometimes bringing home an artifact they picked up along the way, which we then feature in the magazine on our artifact page. Sometimes those stories and artifacts can be found in our own backyard. This month's artifact belongs to Marina Garcia Vasquez, the editor-in-chief of Creators at Vice. She recently co-curated a show at the Museum of Sex here in New York City called NSFW Female Gaze, 
The show showcases more than 25 emerging female artists from various disciplines dedicated to powerful feminine narratives. Here's Marina's story. So earlier this summer, we curated an art exhibit at the Museum of Sex called Not Safe for Work, Female Gaze. The exhibit features 28 female artists making art that explores sexual identity, gender, and body politics through a number of mediums like video, GIFs, textile art, sculpture, photography, and painting. It's really unbelievable to see how striking each body of work is and how every female artist is choosing to challenge societal norms. The show is a collaboration between the Museum of Sex and Creators at Vice. When we first met to discuss any potential synergy between the brands, we knew that our audience demographics were pretty similar, young people between the ages of 18 to 25. The museum sees a lot of young women visitors in this age range, and when I learned that fact, I knew that we can partner up in a very cool way. A few years back, we found that articles about erotic art made by women were of huge interest to our readers on creators. As a media site, we have to label this type of content as not safe for work because of their explicit use of naked bodies. We decided to cover more and more and more of this type of art and started to acknowledge that there was a cultural movement to be aware of. As editors, we were compelled to act fast and to find more meaningful ways to support young female artists, especially in light of today's political climate and the rise of Instagram as a platform for artists. My co-curator, Lissa Rivera, is an artist in her own right, and we spent months and months poring over artists' work we thought was using the female gaze to say something impactful. It was a very profound moment for me as we would sit and discuss art and naked bodies for hours, like so many hours every week. We were looking for new perspectives on sexuality, not just pretty naked ladies to put on a wall. We had to ask ourselves, where is the desire in the work? And what are the assumptions or projections we're bringing to the conversation? Lissa and I became close in the way that you do when you're actively talking about sex and what comes with it. The sexual preference, the sexual experience, family history, dating history, religion, culture, race, self-deprecation, self-confidence. I mean, it's a lot. It's a very loaded theme. And the list just continues to go on. I mentioned that I was more comfortable with talking about boobs than with vaginas in art. And I laughed when I realized that I had said that out loud. Like, what would my mom say? But I could say things like that because it was a safe place. During opening week of the show, we were touring the space and the room was still being built out. I mean, lights were being installed, people were hanging art on the walls. You could hear the video porn segments in the background. But the show was really coming together. Lissa said she had a gift for me, since I liked boobs. When I opened it up, it was a plastic pin with brown breasts that had red heart pasties. Below that reads, boobs and blue bubble letters. After six months of being so serious about the female form, it was a really nice reminder that boobs are really fun. The Vice Magazine podcast is a production of Vice Media. This issue was produced and edited by Sophie Kazis. For more info on the podcast or how to subscribe to the magazine, visit vice.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Vice Magazine podcast on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or any podcast app you use. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review. 
and let us know what you think. I'm Ellis Jones, and I'd like to give a special thanks to all the voices you heard on this episode. Elizabeth Renstrom, Alice Newell Hansen, Jason Leopold, Bruno Bailey, David Severn, Erica Allen, Krishna Andavalu, and Marina Garcia-Vasquez. We'll be back next month with our second annual music issue. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.